All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV, and you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Monday here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Here on the Salem Radio Network, of course, we've got a short week, as does everybody else, with it being the Thanksgiving holiday. In fact, today is the 396th anniversary of America's first governing document, the Mayflower Compact which was done in the name of God for the, quote, advancement of the Christian religion, unquote, when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. So this is a very important week in the legacy of America. Let's make sure we remember the reason for the season. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. We'll bring in Aaron with some weekend news and views here in about 15 minutes. But I want to start tonight with the news. Because I've, I've been fascinated by watching the liberal media and, and the mainstream media. They're not always the same, by the way. I mean, to me, liberal media is flat-out advocacy media. It's, it's, not, it's not slanted. It's advocacy. Mainstream media, to me 
because most of it is is performed by liberals, has some veneer of professionalism to it. You know, we like to rip on the New York Times, and almost every time we do, it's justified. But remember, they're the ones that broke the story of Hillary's email server. So that's an example of what I mean, in that there's some professionalism there. Albeit it is slanted towards a liberal perspective because most of the people that do the work, even the ones that do it professionally, are liberals. So I think we need to draw that distinction. I I think we shouldn't conflate always mainstream media with liberal media. But I've been watching both of them over the last few days, and this picked up again over the weekend with the Sunday morning shows and the like, bemoaning the rise of so-called fake news. The irony here, of course, is rich. On one hand, (laughs) Todd Todd just rolled himself a fatty over there on the other side of the studio, uh, the mere mention of this. Um, the, the, (laughs) The irony of this is dripping with richness, in fact. Um, I remember being on a panel on MSNBC or waiting to go on an MSNBC panel. And as we were waiting to go on the segment ahead of us, it was the last night of John Stewart's The Daily Show. He was getting ready to tape his final show. And they did a five minute homage to John Stewart. And his impact on uh, the culture, on the news. That's fake news. It's, it's, it's not, it's not the news. Actually, it's. It was a comedy show. In fact, as as much of an impact as as John Stewart had, and I I believe his final show was the night of one of the first GOP primary debates. Uh, Stewart used to average, according to my research, between one point two and one point nine million viewers. The GOP debate that night, because that's, if I remember, that's why I was on an MSNBC panel. We were previewing the debate. The, 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 the GOP debate that night had over 20 million viewers. So <laughs> I, I, I'm sure he had an impact on people who, you know, uh, watch MSNBC. But really, it really wasn't that much of a cross-cultural impact. It was a liberal guy, very smart, funny liberal guy, and doing, you know, liberal commentary for liberal viewers. But in the grand scheme of things, that's really not that many people. And it was fake news. But I find it curious that those on the left who think we have the authority as mere human beings, to redefine reality. In fact, to redefine cornerstones of reality. Now seem to be bemoaning the rise of fake news. These are the same people who tell us we can redefine when a human life begins. That if I don't want that life once it's begun, it's not a life, it's something else. It's uh, it's an unviable tissue mass. It's a fetus. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a lump of cells. It's unwanted. 
yet they are bemoaning the rise of fake news. These are the same people who tell us there's 57 genders that we can literally redefine the gender we were assigned with by our creator at birth. We have the authority to do this. And yet they bemoan the rise of of fake news. These are people who tell us we can redefine marriage. Which is a vital institution for the propagation of of the species and the stability of cultures. And yet they bemoan the rise of fake news. Why? If I have it within me as a mere human being with no divine accountability whatsoever to redefine what it means to be alive, what it means to be married, and those, those, two, those, two, those two cornerstones are linked. Why? Because even still in our morally depraved state, what's the number one institution for creating human life? Marriage. So if I can, if I have the authority within me that you on the left have, have, have granted me with whatever authority you believe you have to play God, to decide who gets to live and who does not decide what is a life and what isn't to decide what is my gender to override the wiring that I was given by the wirer. To redefine what is marriage. What is a relationship? Redefine pre-existing things that have within nature for thousands of years. That, that, that the left wants to give us the authority to redefine these things, but then at the same time, You don't have the authority to decide for yourself what is and isn't the news? Listen, I have been bemoaning the rise of fake news this entire election. We saw it with these scam Trump sites, these clickbait sites that emerged like Red State Report, Red Nation Rising, Conservative Treehouse, Printly. These are all scam sites. Every last one of them are. All scams. And we went after these the entire election. But you know why I went after them? Because I believe in truth. Because I don't believe mere humans do have the authority to redefine facts, including your gender, what is a marriage, and what is a life. This is in accordance with my worldview. But I can't seem to understand why this is in accordance with theirs. If certain elements on the right have decided to adopt this postmodern imaginary thinking, where do you believe they learned it? You certainly didn't learn it from the likes of me. Where was this behavior learned? Ah. It was learned from you on the left. And your fake sciences. And your fake victimology. And your fake grievances. And your fake relationships. And your fake marriages. And your fake genders. 
and your fake redefinitions of life. So to you on the left who are lamenting the rise of fake news, you know, the same people who watched Jon Stewart every week instead of going to church, hate the game, not the player. Enjoy your own reflection. We do see through a mirror darkly, do we not? You're listening to Steve Dace. to trick the libs with the truth. Hey, I'm not falling for that. It's Steve Dace. All right, let's get caught up on some of the other news that occurred over the weekend. It is weekend news and views, which we always start off with here on a Monday. Now, I tried to avoid this story all day yesterday. I was a good boy on social media because... This is the dysfunctional relationship that we have with one another. Nonetheless, it is, without question, the top trending story of the weekend. So let's address it, Aaron. That's right. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump on Saturday said the cast of the hit Broadway show Hamilton. Now, have you ever heard of the show, Steve? I have heard of it, yes. You have heard of it. Hamilton was rude. In fact, a good friend of mine who just took a job in D.C. just took his... um, his son, who came to visit, uh, just took his son to see it, and they loved really? it, in fact. Yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. interesting. I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it, but anyway, this hit Broadway show, Hamilton, was uh, rude, evidently, to White House uh, Vice President-elect Mike Pence, and Trump said that he deserves an apology for being harassed. Uh, Trump tweeted, quote, Our wonderful future VP Mike Pence was harassed at last night at the theater by the cast of Hamilton, cameras blazing. This should not happen. He said uh, in a tweet a few minutes later, quote, The theater must always be a safe and special place. The cast of Hamilton was very rude last night to a very good man, Mike Pence. Apologize. End quote. Uh, Pence, the vice presidential elect and a Republican, was also booed as he booed as he attended uh, the show Friday night in New York. The cast had a message for Pence after the show was over and he was walking out saying, quote, We, sir, are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir, end quote. Some audience members took to Twitter to report that the show was paused several times as the crowd booed Pence at certain lines of the show. Cast member Brandon Dixon was the one who delivered the message. Um, the rich irony here is that uh, there is there was a job posting for the cast of Hamilton that was specifically looking for colored people and specifically asked for uh, white people not to apply. So there's that. Pence, for his part, was pretty classy. Uh, he said he he said this is what uh, freedom sounds like, but uh, this is just the left at work again, Steve. Well, first of all, progressive tantrums in response to Trump 
are good for us mm-hmm. in the minds of the public. Um, Trump taking to Twitter to whine about them are not good for us in the minds of the public. The way to handle this is exactly the way that Mike Pence handled it. Because you're going to get sympathy from everybody, everybody that, didn't, that, that voted for you and half the people that did not. Okay? Uh, so just a, this is a culture that thrives on victimization. When, they, when, when the progressives give you the chance to be the victim, just sit there and, 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 and rise above, play the part, and allow them to act out. That, that does, I, I wish this weren't true, by the way. That I had to come to this conclusion against my own will because I don't handle uh, playing the victim very well. Um, I'm much more into settling scores. But I had to, you know, you've heard me, talk, you guys, Todd, you've heard me talk before. You can't fight environment, right? How many times you've heard me say that? I've learned in politics, you cannot fight environment. The environment is a natural cause. You cannot fight it. You have to, you have to adapt to it. So the environment that we live in in America is be an aggrieved class. Be a grief, be, be someone who is victimized by someone else's imposition upon me. I hate it. I can't stand it. Right. But but it's a little bit like living in Iowa and complaining about winter or living in Florida or Texas and complaining how hot it is. Why do you live there? It is what it is. Move places. If it's too hot there, move where it's cooler. If it's too cold there, move where it's hotter. You can't change the environment, but you can adapt to it. So I'm, I'm not going to complain about this anymore. It is what it is. Instead, I'm going to counsel our side that when we have the chance to be victims, marinate in it. Lather, lather yourself in it. Face tatch yourself with it. They stood up and allowed the, 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 the 46 states in between the two coasts to play victim. This is, where, this is where Mike Pence played this right. This story, except for anything Donald Trump says about it, is a winner for our side. The mere reporting of it is a winner for our side. As long as Trump doesn't Trump and just stays out of the way, this is exactly, Todd, how you create an era of good feelings. Agreed, and it did boomerang back on them further, one on the right, one on the left. Of course, Trump called. Some guy from Trump called, answered the cause, bought a ticket, went to the place, and started heckling them, which I find fantastic. <laughs> I agree. I think that's funny. They got exactly what they asked for, yes. right? Yes. yes. Yeah, you, uh, you get what you give. And then uh, Stevie Van Zandt, who, if I'm not mistaken, is Bruce Springsteen's uh, guitarist. Guitarist from he, uh, The Sopranos. Yeah, he yep. went to Twitter and he said, there's never been a more outspoken, politically active artist than me, but he was their guest. You protect your guests. You don't embarrass them. We know that Springsteen is a big defender of the left. But let, he, me, let me tell you why, why a performer of a, of a... Listen, I have no idea how... I know it's a big musical. Whatever whatever Hamilton is, it ain't Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band, okay? This is one of the transcendent music acts of you and I's yes. lifetime, Todd. If I'm Stephen Van Zant and I'm fr- and I and I and I know men like Donald Trump and I know their followings and I and I and by the way, I work for a guy who has a pretty rabid following too. You know what I'm thinking? This is a Pandora's what was what was it you just pointed out? A Trumpist went, to, went and bought a ticket and heckled on the entire... This is a Pandora's box. You're not dealing here with the with Mike Pence, conventional, t- nice people, conservatives now. You are not dealing with that when you deal with the, with the inner sanctum of Trump's supporters. Mm-hmm. If this is not a Pandora's box, the mobocracy wants to open up, I can promise you. That for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
And that one heckler that you're talking about there, listen, we're talking about a, a movement of people like the woman who drew a picture to her privates and said, Mr. Trump, you can grab me by the blank. All right. These are the we, how many videos and pictures have we seen of fawning that disturbed us? Right. I know. Mm-hmm. This is the dark night. We made a deal with something we don't fully understand. Yes. yes this is a road. Trust me on this. This is a, remember when Cruz went out to Indiana in the primary and tried to engage a couple of these people. Right. You remember oh that? Oh my God! This I is don't a, want to remember this that. is a road to nowhere. I I know you're used to bullying people like us. I know that because we really don't even care enough about you to have this interaction. We just want to be left alone. But that's not the case with this particular candidate and an element of his supporters. Todd, this is not a Pandora's box that they want to open. I think that's where you saw Stephen Van Zandt say say guys. Are you really sure that you want to that you want to invite the political equivalent of deadheads to sick us everywhere we perform across the country? I really don't think you want that, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think um, you're absolutely right that this is. I mean, um, if if the left wants this type of response or is, is refusing to learn the lessons. Um, this type of emotional response, I mean, emotion is the language of our country now, I think, um, uh, across all generations. And uh, I think victimology is the most um, potent form of that language. And if you allow your uh, opponents, your political opponents, to play the victim, eventually that's going to come right back around and hit you in the back of the head. I'd bet my house the progressives won't be able to help themselves. Oh, they won't? In fact, we're going to talk more about that when we get to story number two from over the weekend here that's going to make this point in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Standing up for your rights and telling you the way it is. This man is an American hero. Steve Dace. All right, back to your more weekend news and views here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Next up, this should have been the big story over the weekend. But it wasn't. I'll explain why in a moment. But that story, Aaron, is what? Yeah, Donald Trump has agreed to a $25 million settlement to um, end the fraud cases against his now-defunct Trump University. That's according to New York's Attorney General. It's a move that the president-elect said on Saturday was done in order to, quote, focus on the country, end quote. The settlement likely means that Trump will avoid becoming possibly the first sitting president to testify in open court. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman called the settlement on Friday a major victory for the over 6,000 victims of his fraudulent university. Lawyers involved in the cases say the settlements apply to three lawsuits against Trump University, including two cases filed in California. Trump commented on the settlement via Twitter on Saturday, telling his 15 million followers that the only, quote, bad thing about winning the presidency, end quote, was not being able to fight the long but winning Trump University trial. The trial for one of the cases had been scheduled to start November 28th. The $25 million figure will be split among students who sued, minus legal fees. Uh, Trump will also repay up to $1 million in penalties to the state of New York, and that's according to Attorney General Schneiderman again. Former students of Trump University say the school fraudulently misrepresented uh, what students would be taught and falsely claimed the instructors were handpicked by Trump. First of all, this is a smart move by Trump to do this. Secondly, um, 
far be it for me to tell a billionaire how to run his businesses, but um, that is pro- those are those are probably a political treasure trove of lawsuits, class actions, frivolous or otherwise, for the next four to eight years. He should consider liquidating his 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 involvement in those assets. And I know you don't want to do that if you're Donald Trump. You spent your lifetime building these things up. They bear your name. I get it. They're your legacy. But you're the president of these United States now. And there is, I mean, what's, can you just imagine the lawsuits planted? Discrimination. I went in to apply for a job. They told me, I, I mean, just use your imagination and don't tell me that somewhere within the bowels of the left, they're not already plotting what all of these are going to be like for the next four years. And, and and that those become a massive political distraction, and even if they don't, they, they even if they get nowhere in the courts, it gets to the point with the American people where they want where, where Trump did a great job in this election is for all of the ego, and he is a narcissist and he is a megalomaniac. He did a great job in crafting his megalomaniacism and narcissism as a movement around the people and not around himself. Because you've heard me say for years, people want elections to be about them, not about you. And we said at the time, the final pitch commercial he came out with the final weekend of the campaign, I thought was phenomenal. If that had been his opening salvo, this thing might have been uh, not as close as it turned out to be. And that entire thing was an emphasis on the people and not him. Well, if we sit here for four years... And it's every day is the news, another lawsuit, another another class action, another claim, right? People are going to start thinking, hey, you know, we can't get anything done. And that will be the left's goal. The left's goal will be to show you can't govern, you can't lead, because you're bogged down by all of these things. So I, I think that is something that, that should be considered within Trump Tower. But this should have been the lead story this weekend. And this should have been a story that was a bad look for Donald Trump. Because as he told us many times during the campaign, he doesn't settle anything. Okay? Um, $25 million is not chump change. I doubt we've ever had a president ever settle a lawsuit for $25 million. <laughs> History of this republic. Okay? Yet, this is an agate-type story. Why? Because of what you just said, Todd, before the last break. The progressives cannot contain themselves. So even when, and why did they, why'd they settle this on a Friday afternoon? Friday news dump. That's why all the bad Hillary news always came on Fridays during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Trump campaign knew this was a bad story. So they smartly said, yeah, we're going to settle this at 4 o'clock in the afternoon Friday. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, and, and this should have been the focal point. You know, the, if, the, if professional liberal advocacy media would have made all their Sunday shows and their panels about this concern, trolling, sanctimony. Uh, it's just how terrible this is for the country. Can he govern when he's got these, when he's, when he's selling these fraud claims, right? This is what they should have done. But because of this Hamilton story and their inability to contain themselves and they so want their own echo chamber, they so want to stroke one another's egos and affirm one another. Most Americans don't even know about the Trump University settlement but know all about this Hamilton story because progressives can't contain themselves. You're listening to Steve Dace. 
So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. And there are progressive radical liberal phone companies spending tens of millions of dollars to remove conservative leaders from office and fight for liberal social change. So what's a patriot like you to do? Well, you can start by calling my friends at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. You get the same quality service, competitive prices, and you get to help causes you believe in. Call Patriot Mobile right now at 800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code Steve at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code Steve. Listening to it will make you feel American. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It's the Steve Day Show. One more thing on on what we were just talking about before we move on to the next story from over the weekend with some weekend news and views here on the Steve Day Show. What I am just going to be fascinated by the next four years, just as somebody who works in the media and loves the framing of the debate and the science part of political science is this is now where this is where you know we we started our series this week our look at uh, or last week on worldview wednesday lessons to learn from 2016 the things about trump's ego that were cautionary tales during this campaign i think now that he's in office i think they all work to his advantage provided he's not unhinged because he now has the biggest bully pulpit on the planet and the first word of bully pulpit is what bully bully yeah i mean for a guy who everything in life is a nail and he's a hammer this is a fully armed and operational battle station and and what's going to be fascinating to me is you know a lot of these members of the press corps they're used to George W. Bush. That was the last time we had a Republican in there. And for eight years, for the most part, he was beyond classy to the opposition, gave quarter beyond even accommodation that he didn't have to. And, and then when things started to get rough towards the end of his eight years and Iraq started to go sour, what did we see? You went into a bunker and you set mumbling, um, you know... You know, Dick Cheney out there to bore everybody to death. And he's an easy figure for the left to throw out there as, you know, uh, as a dark lord type of a, of a, of a figure. They are now not going to face anything like what they're about to face for the next four years. And even though Reagan mastered the bully pulpit, uh, his, his touch will be much defter than the one you will see from Donald Trump. And, and Trump understands that the media is his friend. They're goading, their histrionics, their hysteria. He needs that. That nothing keeps his bait. Trump right now has... <laughs> you want to know what happened in Never Trump after the... It's not that Trump won. 
It's not, it's not it at all. I mean, he's out there today talking about how I can work with Chuck Schumer. He's a really smart guy. No. No, I don't, I don't think anybody sent Donald Trump there to work with Chuck Schumer. Anybody? Anybody listening to this show that voted for Donald Trump, did you send him there to work with Chuck Schumer? No, you did not. But just as we were talking a minute ago, the Trump University story, the settlement should have been the big story of the weekend because the progressives could not contain themselves. They were not. It's in the agate section. Never Trump people like myself have a hard, are having a hard time expressing our concerns that are legit. That most of you, when you voted for Trump, you had these concerns as well, but you were, as my buddy Bob Vanderplas likes to say, voting for an outcome, which is we got to kick the Marxists out. But right now, is your attention focused on Trump tweeting, I can work with Chuck Schumer, or watching how unhinged the left is, and thinking to yourself, no, 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 that, no. No. See, that is the biggest ally Donald, President Trump, will have. Pull the string, watch him go off, and and this is where we as conservatives now, we have to be concerned about this. Because even though we're happy the Marxists are gone, Donald Trump, Todd, did not get a character transplant. And yes, I said on Friday, the early returns are promising. But eventually, water reaches its level. The last thing we need to do is create an environment where this guy's success is not defined by advancing what we believe, but rather by being the object of the scorn of our opponents. That is exactly how he will not have a successful presidency from our viewpoint. Is if it's not about substance, but it's about, you know what, man, I love the way this guy hammers these people and drives them nuts. That's going to be a very difficult temptation to withstand for the next four years because he's masterful at this. He's better at this game than the left is. And it's the only game the left really has because they can't really win an argument on issue substance. So they have to win it this way. That's why they keep going back to it. And now they're up against that guy. When you go play basketball at the Y, the guy who never played organized basketball all of his life, so he doesn't play uh, ball you man defense, but plays man you ball. And he fronts you 25 feet from the basket and it totally throws you off because no one plays basketball this way. It's like every move you know and every fundamental you were taught doesn't suddenly work. And now you're like looking at, like, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. That, because there is a certain spectator aspect of this we're going to enjoy immensely the next four years. We're going to be rooting for him to do this because these people are so deserving of it. But we can't let that take the place of substantive governing. And that's going to be a very difficult temptation for our side to withstand. You described why I said on Friday when you asked on one of the questions, are you more or less pessimistic about Trump now that we've had a week to reflect on it? And I said, I'm more pessimistic because of us. And it's for the exact reason you said. This is a fun little bender we're on. I I do admit it. But if we stay on it, then we're just a bunch of drunks. That's it. Right. We got to sober up. We got to have a plan. We got to have some fortitude. We got to knock down the things that need to be knocked down and then rebuild. But right now, uh, you know, a drunk is pretty darn good at knocking things down. But it's the rebuilding. It's the constitutionalism that gets a little tough. 
Yeah, I mean, even even if you want to um, go drunk on the tears of 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 the left in this country, um, I mean, they're they're already melting down, and he hasn't done a darn thing. And he's made a few cabinet appointments. I mean, yes, we should not let that be our our sole motivation, just wanting to see uh, opponents just uh, crumble and uh, be completely depressed. And I I know that that would would be tempting. But even if that the the, the way that that will actually happen and continue to happen is if something of substance is accomplished in the future by Donald Trump and his administration. Case in point of, of what we were just talking about. Some of the latest numbers from this election have come in over the weekend. We'll give you the update on that here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. If you believe in lots of free handouts, this is probably not your show. What is it? Do you want more money? It's the Steve Day Show. All right, one more story. Weekend news and views here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. And Aaron, some interesting look at the, an interesting look at the voting numbers. Mm-hmm. If you simply subtract the People's Republic of California. Yeah, that's right. Let's look at the kind of the big picture first here. Um, you know, Donald Trump won nearly 60 more electoral college votes than Hillary Clinton. But the Democratic presidential nominee's uh, popular vote uh, total continues to advance as some of the ballots from the final states are, are continued to be counted. Uh, Clinton is ahead of Trump by more than 1.4 million popular votes, telling close to President Obama's 2012 election results with 63 million, a little over 63 million votes to Trump's uh, almost 62 million votes. That's according to a Cook Political Report analysis on Friday. However... Patrick Ruffini, he is a uh, strategist, a political strategist, and he knows his stuff, tweeted out some very, um, very interesting numbers, as you pointed out, Steve, over the weekend. He says, without California, the vote total would look like this. Trump with 57,943,000 votes and change to to, uh, Clinton's 56,150,000 votes and change. And then the uh, Electoral College would look like Trump with 306 electoral college votes and Clinton's 177 electoral college votes. So without California, this is, I mean, this is a, a big win for Trump in both electoral college and the, and the uh, uh, popular vote as well. Here's why I think this number matters. Because I'm, you know, I hated when people said this when I did sports talk radio. Well, without those turnovers, we would have won. Well, you know, if my aunt had testes, she'd be my uncle. I mean, those turnovers are part of the game. So without California, these would be then. Well, California's part of the union, guys. Mm-hmm. All right. And there's a lot of good people live in California. But here's why I do think these numbers are relevant. This is the, this is the trap the left has set for itself. Is it has so believed, Todd, in the majoritarian superiority of its values that it hasn't really considered that it would have to um, it, it would have to assimilate into, ironically enough, a pluralistic, diverse culture. <laughs> and 
And I think what what's going to be a real test for them as they determine their leaders in the next few weeks, both of the Democratic Party and then also their leaders in Congress. Nancy Pelosi, by the way, she's from California, is they really are a bicoastal party. They represent the most liberal elements of the country on the two coasts. They represent barely anybody in the middle country, in the middle of the country, between those two, uh, those two coasts. And will they double, triple down on that sort of Californication identity, or are they going to recognize this? In other words, will they learn all the wrong lessons from this election? Of course they will. I had that conversation at church with the guy who asked me my opinion. This is their religion, and they believe in it fervently, more than we often believe in our religion, which is why we misdiagnose what they're about. They're believers. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Back with Hour 2 here at the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Last name spelled D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. It's a Monday, so we welcome in our good friend Bob Vanderplatz from The Family Leader. How are you, Bob? I'm doing well. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Same to you as well. We've got a short week, so we've got a lot to get to. I want to begin by just getting your overall assessment of what we have seen out of the the early days of the Trump transition. And I'm not going to ask anything. I'm not going to add any qualifiers or anything leading. But I just want to get your visceral reaction to what we have seen thus far. Well, first of all, I think we've talked since uh, election night, have we? Or have we had a show since election night? No, uh, the, not on the, the air. Yeah, the first thing that I would say is that I really believe, as all the experts were wrong, and the only thing I attribute it to is that, you know, you know, God granted us a reprieve. And I believe more Mr. Trump understands that, you know, he probably didn't win this thing, but God granted a reprieve, and he gets to be... Uh, the vessel in which to lead the presidency, I think then it takes on a whole different mantra. Almost a Ronald Reagan, like after I get shot, all the days I have left, all the days I lead now are for God. And I believe that would be awesome uh, if that was embraced by Mr. Trump. And quite frankly, uh, that's my prayer for him. I, I would say in regards to uh, the, the times that what we've seen since that time is I, I do think Mr. Trump needs to have <laughs> have his Twitter taken away. I think you're now the president-elect, and whether it's the the Hamilton cast or how Mike Pence got treated or whatever it is, I thought Mike Pence sounded ripe of saying, hey, listen, that's what freedom sounds like once in a while. So I don't need to apologize. I'm not offended. Let's have a healthy dialogue about the future of the country. Two is since the Trump victory is you've seen a, a chasm in this country. You've seen a great division in this country. Uh, where the left and the right are kind of drawn drawn lines. It's almost very visible. And I think it's going to take a lot from a President Trump to basically not 
not sacrifice the principles you have for your leadership, but to say, bring people together around your leadership versus continuing a divided and a divisive America. I think that's, that is something, uh, at least a huge flag of caution that I would raise. That's not leadership, and we need to be bringing people together. In regards to people that he's been appointing, uh, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, I think Steve Bannon, uh, he feels a lot of loyalty to for what Steve did uh, in that campaign. And I think Bannon, from what I was told by one one peer saying, you know, maybe we should be thankful Bannon is there. Not that we embrace what Bannon says all the time or some of his viewpoints and all that, but he is fighting for conservatives to be to be appointed. That may be one. Reince Priebus, the way I saw that was another kind of a, uh, hey, thanks for doing what the RNC did. But also, I think just a very factual matter is that you have 4,000 positions you need to fill now. If you have 4,000 positions you need to fill, you need to have somebody know where's there 4,000 people that are willing to serve. Because although it might be pretty heady to say, I'm going to Washington, D.C., or I'm serving in the administration, that is a 24-7 job that makes you leave a career, makes you leave a family, makes you leave everything to do that. Not everybody's willing and able to do that. And having Priebus in there for six years, he's been over the RNC apparatus. He should know where the names of the live bodies are to say, uh, we can bring you in. I thought it was a, a good move in regards to him saying, you know, I'm willing to have Ted Cruz in for three, four, five hours, whatever is meeting with me, meeting with the transition team, uh, talking about the possibility of attorney general. Uh, obviously, Cruz didn't get that position, and um, and uh, Jeff Sessions did. And Sessions is is a good appointment, and so I'm glad he got that. What he's doing, Mitt Romney on Secretary of State, we'll see how that plays out. So I think he's at least trying to cast a vision of, hey, I won. Let's now try to bring people together. I think, Steve, at the end of the day, uh, my last visit with him, I talked to him about many people are going to say we need a Reagan today. I would argue we don't need a Reagan. We need more of a Lincoln today. A Lincoln who will lead with humility, a Lincoln who will lead with integrity, a Lincoln who will ask this country to repent, not only of our personal, but of our national sins, and also a Lincoln that would surround himself with a team of rivals, because our country is much bigger than one person. It's designed to be bigger than one person. Let's bring the best and the brightest around. That would be my hope. That would be my prayer. So I guess at the end of the day, the very short version would be I'm cautiously optimistic. What evidence do you have that, Mr. that that President Trump will be the kind of Lincoln-esque leader that you just described? Well, again, that goes back to my prayer uh, more than saying I, I have evidence. And my prayer would be when you understand that humanly you did not win that election, but God intervened. And I've heard that from so many people that, you know, God had intervened because there wasn't the ground game. There wasn't the strategy. There wasn't the typical apparatus. All the experts said you're going to get beat. God had intervened. So if that happens, first of all, there's a strike of humility. His acceptance for his uh, victory speech uh, that early Wednesday morning. Yeah, I know he had to read off a teleprompter. Yeah, there were the words placed there for him. But he also walked up there with, with, a, with a strident humility. Now, is that short-lived or can that be long-term? Because the humility is, you know, you're now going to be the president of the United States. That's a very humbling thing to say, I'm going to be president of the United States. But then the thing about, you know, who am I going to surround myself with? Is it going to be conservatives or if I'm going to go liberal and moderate? And can I bring in the best talent? That's my hope and that's my prayer. 
How much are you concerned or not concerned by by loyalty to Trump being clearly one of the primary factors for being seriously considered, if not given, a uh, a position of prominence. Well, I, I'm very concerned about that. Now, loyalty, first of all, is a good thing, unless that's the only mark you're looking for, is that you're loyal to me. And if you're loyal to me, you're not going to challenge me. If you're loyal to me, you're going to stay in line. That, to me, is of is a bigger issue. So loyalty isn't a bad deal. I, I require loyalty here out of our team, but we have also a very open environment of let's let's discuss it, and they know I'm not going to use it against them. But I think the bigger issue here is I need to bring the best and the brightest around me. And when, when they surround me, they're going to make me better as a leader, better as a president. If it's only based on loyalty and I'm going to look past qualifications only to get to loyalty – then I think that becomes a serious issue. The network of people you have that you talk to around the country, are any of them concerned at all about Steve Bannon? Yeah, oh, definitely they are. And and from Steve Bannon, from a point of view of of some of the alt-right positions to be, say that the conservative movement would be characterized as alt-right, uh, that, that is a concern to them. Now, what on the flip side of that, what I mentioned earlier, one of the peers said to me, but right now it's good that he's in there because he's fighting at least to get conservative principles that, that we don't leave those behind and gets hijacked by, say, a moderate progressive agenda versus saying, no, we, we want to be led by conservatives. But there's no doubt Steve Bannon is definitely a concern for a lot of my peers. Your peers and their thoughts on Jeff Sessions as AG, because I have been adamant all along, that is a position that has to go to a culture warrior. Well, that, that's a, it's one of the most powerful in the administration. It's a very good pick. I think uh, my peers, even those who weren't for Cruz in the primary, that were for somebody else in the primary, I think when he brought Cruz in, I think a lot of my peers were right away put Ted Cruz to be attorney general. Because I think everybody saw Ted Cruz when he was solicitor general of Texas, what would happen when he's attorney general uh, for the United States. They're very excited about that. However, bypassing Cruz to go to Sessions, yeah, that might be a mark of loyalty, but Sessions is still a very good pick. And I think my peers see that, that Sessions is a good pick. Yeah, I think if President Cruz had appointed oh, we'd be Jeff thrilled. Sessions to that, most people would be thrilled, right? Right. What about Supreme Court Justice Ted Cruz? I, I personally would love to see that. And, you know, there's some calls that you receive that you just can't turn down. Uh, you may say, well, I, I would rather be in the policy fight, Ted Cruz. I'd rather be in this fight, Ted Cruz. But if you get a call from President Trump saying, I want you to serve as our next Supreme Court justice, uh, that's a that's a difficult call to turn down. And I have, I think Ted Cruz would be excellent in that position. I do, too. I've always preferred that myself. I mean, it's not my career, but uh, uh, just as an admirer, I've always preferred that to attorney general. Because the balance of the court, this is the the Scalia appointment of all. We can't Trump can't we can't afford Trump to get any of them wrong. But this is the one he really cannot get wrong. Is there has to be somebody on there who has a provable record and is young enough to essentially be the the, the constitutional cornerstone of the next generation. I don't know anybody that fits that bill better than Ted Cruz does. More on that here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace.
Wake up, America, before it's too late. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here with Bob Vanderplatz of the Family Leaders. So, Bob, I, I think personnel is always policy anyway. But I think in this administration, you're dealing with somebody who is not familiar and has spent most of his life uninterested with the minutia of government of governing. And, and I think the people that run these departments are going to have, unless they blow it, I think they're going to have extraordinary power, uh, unprecedented unilateral authority, and essentially be told, uh, you know, just give me the budget report, make sure we're meeting a nut. And if we are, then this is your little fiefdom. You agree or disagree with that? I really agree with that. And I, I think they're going to have extraordinary authority. They're going to have extraordinary uh, anonymity. I do think maybe the one person that uh, they're going to be held responsible to probably more than others is probably going to be Mike Pence. Mike Pence does know what governing's about, being a governor of the state of Indiana and before that a congressman. And we'll see what kind of power uh, President Trump gives to Vice President Mike Pence. You mentioned Bannon and the role that he's going to play. And how influential is he? I, I want to spend some time this hour. The Hollywood Reporter has a feature on him, and he spoke to them. Why he chose to speak to them after the election and no one else <laughs> is beyond me, I don't know. Conservative review would be a better choice. Yeah, it's than... kind of an odd you know, uh, match, but okay, we'll go with it. But, but he gave them an exclusive interview after the election. Just for the record, Steve, at least I can say this. My guess is you can say this. Of all the media outlets that have contacted me to get my opinion or insight on anything, and I've been the Huffington Post and others, the Hollywood Reporter has never called the. Agreed. Family. I, I've never, I've never gotten a call from them either. And um, have you ever met Bannon? I've met him once, but not in any tangible way. He was in Pella, Iowa, with Sarah Palin, uh, releasing Sarah's movie. So it was about four years ago, right? I think I've met him once. He's interviewed me on Breitbart Radio a couple times, and, and I didn't know like about any of this stuff at that time. I didn't know about any of it. Probably because people I know like Ben Shapiro and Dana Lash were still associated with Breitbart then, and it wasn't until after they left that a lot of the stuff that we've heard about now has started to come out. It's amazing so, when you get this kind of position, what comes out. <laughs> well, I think that if you're going to give if, – if, if a guy who is likely – is largely a blank slate to most Americans – if he's if if he's going to be uh, the chief strategist of the most powerful person in the world, I think we ought to know more about him, don't you? Exactly. All right. So I want to share this article, and then I want to get everybody's reaction to it. This is from Michael Wolf at the Hollywood Reporter. He writes in late summer when I went up to see Steve Bannon, then recently named CEO of the Donald Trump presidential campaign in his office at Trump Tower, in New York. He outlined a preposterous sounding scenario. Trump, he said, would do surprisingly well among women, Hispanics, and African Americans, in addition to working men and hence take Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and therefore win the election. On November 15th, when I went back to Trump Tower, Bannon, promoted by the president-elect to chief strategist for the incoming administration, and by the media as the official symbol of all things hateful and virulent about the coming Trump presidency, said, as matter-of-factly as when he first sketched it out for me, I told you so. The liberal firewall against Trump was, most of all, the belief that the Republican contender was too disorganized, outlandish, and lacking in nuance to run a proper political campaign. 
That view was only confirmed when Bannon, editor of the outlandish Breitbart News Network, took over the campaign in August. Now, Bannon is arguably the most powerful person on the new White House team, embodying more than anyone the liberals' awful existential pain and fury. How did someone so wrong, not just wrong, but inappropriate, unfit, and loathsome, according to the New York Times, get it so spot-on right? In these dark days for Democrats, Bannon has become their blackest hole. Darkness is good, says Bannon who amid the suits surrounding him at Trump Tower looks like a graduate student in his T-shirt, open, button-down, and tatty blue blazer, albeit a 62-year-old grad student. Dick Cheney, Darth Vader, Satan. That's power. It only helps us when they, and I believe by they he means liberals and media already promoting calls for his ouster, get it wrong, when they're blind to who we are and what we are doing. On that precise point, the New York Times, in a widely circulated article, will describe this day at Trump Tower as a scene of disarray for the transition team. In fact, when I'm here, it's all hands-on. Mike Pence, the vice president-elect and transition chief, and Reince Priebus, the new chief of staff, shuttling between full conference rooms. Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law... Uh, and, and by many accounts, his closest advisor conferring in the halls. Senator Jeff Sessions in and out of meetings on the transition team floor. Rudy Giuliani upstairs with Trump overheard. Is the boss meeting meeting with Rudy or just shooting the breeze? And Bannon with a long line of men and women outside his corner office. If this is disarray, it's peculiarly, peculiar focused and organized kind. It's the Bannon theme, the myopia of the media, that it tells only the story it confirms as its own view, that in the end was incapable of seeing an alternative outcome and of making a true risk assessment of the political variables, reaffirming the Hillary Clinton campaign's own political myopia. This defines the parallel realities in which liberals, in their view of themselves, represent a morally superior character and Bannon, immortalized on Twitter as a white nationalist, racist, anti-Semite thug, is the ultimate depravity of Trumpism. The focus on Bannon, if not necessarily the description, is right. He's the man with the idea. If Trumpism is to represent something intellectually and historically coherent, it's Bannon's job to make it so. In this, he could not be a less reassuring or more confusing figure to liberals, fiercely intelligent and yet reflexively drawn to the inverse of every liberal assumption and and sacred uh, and shibboleth. We'll go with that term. That's easier. A working class kid. He enlists in the Navy after high school, gets a degree from Virginia Tech, then Georgetown, then Harvard Business School. Then it's Goldman Sachs. Then he's a dealmaker, an entrepreneur in Hollywood, where, in an unlikely and very lucky deal matchup, he gets a lucrative piece of Seinfeld royalties, ensuring his own small fortune. Then into the other world of the vast right-wing conspiracy and conservative media. He partners with David Bossie, a, con- a congressional investigator of President Clinton, who later spearheaded the Citizens United lawsuit that effectively removed the cap on campaign spending. And who now, as the deputy campaign manager, is in the office next to Bannon's. And then to the Breitbart News Network, with which with digital acumen and mind meld with the anger and passion of the new alt-right, a liberal designation Bannon derides, he pushes to the inner circle of conservative media from Breitbart's base in the west side of liberal Los Angeles. What he seems to have carried from a boyhood in a blue-collar union and Democratic family in Norfolk, Virginia, and through his tour of the American establishment, is an unreconstructed sense of class awareness or bitterness or betrayal. 
The Democratic Party betrayed, betrayed its working man roots, just as Hillary Clinton betrayed the longtime Clinton connection, Bill Clinton's connection to the working man. The Clinton strength, Bannon says, was to play to people without a college degree. High school people, that's how you win elections. And likewise, the Republican Party would come to betray its working man constitu- constituency forged under Reagan. In sum, the working man was betrayed by the establishment or what Bannon dismisses as the, quote, Donor class, unquote. We'll have more on this in a moment. Your thoughts on what you've heard so far? Yeah, I think it's very insightful uh, reporting. I think a lot of what they're starting to reveal, uh, I would agree with. I think the media completely missed it. Why? Because the media wanted to, to, to fit their own narrative. The media didn't want to hear about the frustration that was going on. One thing after another going underneath that carpet, bubble after bubble going underneath that carpet of seeing an America that they believed in that they were losing. All of a sudden it popped and it popped on November 8th and the beneficiary was Donald Trump. More of this feature on Steve Bannon and reaction to it in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. For a written transcript of this show, start writing really fast. Right now, Steve Dace. All right, more of this Hollywood Reporter feature on Steve Bannon, who he granted uh, an interview to. It continues to say that Bannon sees this donor class, which in his telling is also ascendant America, as in the elites, as well as the metrosexual bubble, as he calls it, that encompasses cosmopolitan sensibilities to be found as far and wide as Shanghai, London's Chelsea, Hollywood, and the Upper West Side. Bannon sees them, to say that Bannon sees this as a world apart is an understatement. In his view, there's hardly a connection between this world and its opposite. Flyover America. Left behind America. Downwardly mobile America. Hardly a common language between the two. This is partly why he regards the liberal characterization of himself as socially vile, as the politically incorrect devil incarnate as laughable, and why he is stoutly unapologetic. They, liberals and media, don't understand what he is saying or why or to whom. Breitbart, with its casual propagations, lists of its varied incitements include conservative writer David Horowitz referring to Bill Kristol as a, quote, renegade Jew, and the site delighting in headlines like the likes of trannies 49 times higher have a higher HIV rate, and birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. This <laughs> We're in hot exchange after the election among appalled Democrats. Um And in this, in the Bannon view, this is all part of the profound misunderstanding that led liberals to believe Donald Trump's mouth would doom him instead of elect him. That Trump is essentially the 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 rights version of liberal donor globalist. He's the rights version of Lena Dunham is to the liberal donor uh, globalist class. Bannon arguably is one of the most uh, is one of the people most at the at the battle line of the great American divide and one of the people to have most clearly seen it. He absolutely mockingly rejects the idea that this is a racial line. He says, I'm not a white nationalist. He says, I'm a nationalist. I'm an economic nationalist. The globalist gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia. The issue now is about Americans looking not to get effed over if we deliver. By we, he means the Trump White House. 
He says, quote, we'll get 60 percent of the white vote, 40 percent of the black and Hispanic vote, and we'll govern for 50 years. That's what the Democrats missed. They were talking to these people with companies with a nine billion dollar market cap employing nine people. That's not reality. They lost sight of what the world is really about. In a nascent administration that seems, at best, random in its beliefs, Bannon can seem to be not just a focused voice, but also a messianic one. Quote, like Andrew Jackson's populism, we're going to build an entirely new movement. It's everything related to jobs. The conservatives are going to go crazy. I'm the guy pushing a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. With negative interest rates throughout the world, it's the greatest opportunity to rebuild everything. Shipyards, ironworks, get them all jacked up. We're just going to throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. It will be as exciting as the 1930s. Were the 1930s mm. exciting? What, what, what did we have in the 1930s, you guys know? Well, we had the Roaring Twenties, but I think those faded pretty quickly. Yeah, they were called, it was called the Depression. That's what we had in the 1930s. It will be as exciting as the 1930s, greater than the Reagan Revolution. Conservatives plus populists in an economic nationalist movement. That's a direct quote. Bannon represents, he's not, he, he not unreasonably believes, the fall of the establishment. The self-satisfied, inbred, and homogenous view of the establishments are both what he is against and what, he has, prov- what has provided the opening for Trump's revolution. The media bubble is the ultimate symbol of what's wrong with the country, he says. It's just a circle of people talking to themselves who have no effing idea what's going on. If the New York Times didn't exist, CNN and MSNBC would be a test pattern. The Huffington Post and everything else is predicated on the New York Times. It's a closed circle of information from which Hillary Clinton got all of her info and her confidence. That was our opening. At the moment as we talk, there's a knock on the door to Bannon's office. A temporary, impersonal, middle-level executive space with a hodgepodge of chairs for constant and prompt two meetings. Senator Ted Cruz, once the Republican firebrand, now quite a small and unassuming figure, has been waiting patiently for a chat, and Bannon excused himself for a short while. It is clear when we return to our conversation that it is not just the liberal, the liberal establishment that Bannon feels he has triumphed over, but the conservative one, too. Not least of all, Fox News and its owners, the Murdochs. They got it more wrong than anybody, he says. Rupert is a globalist and never understood Trump. To him, Trump is a radical. Now they'll go centrist and build the network around Megyn Kelly. Bannon recounts with no small irony that when Breitbart attacked Kelly after her challenges to Trump in the initial GOP debate, Fox News chief Roger Ailes, whom Bannon describes as an important mentor and who Kelly's accusations of sexual harassment would help topple in July, called to defend her. Bannon said he warned Ailes that Kelly would be out to eventually get him too. All right, we're up against a break. Let me stop right there. Your thoughts so far? Well, first of all, I think it's very insightful. I think it's insightful reading. Matter of fact, I, I would encourage the listeners uh, to read this for themselves because what what Bannon, whether you agree with them or disagree with him, he is basically peeling the onion back and saying, take a hard look at what we saw. We'll come back with the conclusion of this feature on Steve Bannon, who is now one of the most powerful people in America next. Listening to Steve Dace. You can take the scraps the Democrats want to give you. But I like it here. They let me eat anything that falls on the floor. Or you can work for more. This is the Steve Day Show. All right, let's get to the conclusion of this Hollywood Reporter feature on Steve Bannon. 
when Bannon took over the campaign from Paul Monifert, there were many in the Trump circle who had resigned themselves to the inevitability of the candidate listening to no one. But here, too, was a Bannon insight. When the campaign seemed most in free fall or disarray, it was perhaps most on target. While Clinton was largely absent from the campaign trail and concentrating on courting her donors, Trump, even after the leak of the grab-them-by-the-you-know-what audio, was speaking to ever-growing crowds of thirty-five to 40,000 people. He gets it. He gets it intuitively, says Bannon, perhaps still surprised he has found such an ideal vessel. Quote, you have probably the greatest orator since William Jennings Bryan. Coupled with an economic populist message and two political parties that are so owned by the donors, they don't speak to their audience. But he speaks in a non-political vernacular. He communicates with these people in a very visceral way. Nobody in the Democratic Party listened to his speeches, so they had no idea he was delivering such a compelling and powerful economic message. He shows up three and a half hours late to Michigan at 1 a.m., and and, and we have 35,000 people waiting in the cold. When they got Clinton off the donor circuit, she went to Temple University and drew 400 kids. Indeed, during the worst days of the campaign, even down to the last day when most in Trump land thought only a miracle would save them, Bannon says, quote, I knew that she couldn't close. They outspent us 10 to 1, had 10 times more people and had all the media with them. But I kept saying it doesn't matter. They got it all wrong. We've got this locked, unquote. Bannon now becomes part of a two-headed White House political structure with Reince Priebus in and out of Bannon's office as we talk. As a chief as chief of staff in charge of making the trains run on time, reporting to the president and Bannon as chief strategist in charge of vision, goals, narrative and plan of attack, reporting to the president, too. Add to this the ambitions and whims of the president himself and the novel circumstance of one who has never held elected office, the agenda of his highly influential family and the end runs of a party of of a party, significant parts of which were opposed to him. And you have quite a complex court that Bannon will have to finesse to realize his reign of the working man and a trillion dollars in new spending. Quote, I am, he says, with relish, Thomas Cromwell in the court of the Tudors, unquote. For people that don't know that historical reference, Thomas Cromwell was the Protestant reformer who embedded himself into King Henry VIII's court um, and used the king wanting his divorce from Catherine of Aragorn that the Pope which would, would not grant. He used that as the means by which to convert Henry VIII temporarily towards Protestantism and thus the establishment of the Church of England, its own religion predicated around essentially what Henry VIII thinks. So that's what that is a reference to. I want to get everybody's reaction to this. And he's calling himself that? Yes. I have no good things to say. This guy... Essentially, Thomas Cromwell replaced Sir Thomas More, who was Henry VIII's Catholic mentor as a child, and Cromwell then became his spiritual mentor as an adult king. Listen, it it is remarkable that there was no discernible drop in the gender vote or the Hispanic vote. It is remarkable. But and you said last week, I believe that this is equivalent of putting it all. You going to Vegas and betting it all on black. Yeah, this was but, not lightning in a bottle. Yes, this, this is the plant closed. They gave you your last check, and you went to Vegas and bet it all on black to stay home to avoid homelessness. Follow Bannon at your own peril. This is not a movement. What this movement amounted to was two million fewer votes than Mitt Romney, and that uh, and then with Hillary's uh, seven million fewer votes, you have what we got. That is not sustainable unless you learn to govern and win back the never. Trump conservatives who when you look issue by issue by issue all your anger and emotion ultimately when it comes down to the issues and if people are honest they want to do the things that never Trump wants to do 
they want to do the things that men like you, Bob, uh, want to do. And I listen. I I weep for a country that is full of folks that want to follow Steve Bannon into a burning building. Follow at your own peril. Todd, your rea- or, I'm sorry, Bob, your reaction. Well, I, very interesting. Just you know, listening to Todd. When I'm looking, at it, I'm looking at it more from a campaign strategy. First of all, because there's a lot of things he said in there that I, I believe he's right on. Now, he, his conclusions might be off, especially saying, okay, this is who I am inside of this orbit now. But some of the things that, that he saw, he's exactly right. Uh, the Democrats didn't take Detroit seriously. You have, you have all closing factories. You, you left behind these type of people. And is there angst built up? There was angst built up. There was angst built up for a lot of reasons from our side of the fence of an America that just continually to drift, even with the courts getting the, the full opportunity to make decisions and enforce upon us the elitism, all that stuff. And he tapped into that into both sides. So on that piece of it, I think he might be right. But now here's the, the piece about governing. The governing is you still need to bring pieces together. You need to bring pieces. Leadership is about bringing people around your vision. It's not about just destroying everybody else. Leadership would be about Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney and George W. Bush all saying, holy cow, he's leading the way this country needs to be led right now. And so I don't, to me, and that's where I say my hope and my prayer is that if you really believe that God intervened, which I believe, I mean, the church showed up like never before. That's one thing he never talks about is the church showing up like never before. The people of faith showing up like well, never before. It be- is very clear from this. There is no spiritual component to Steve Bannon's worldview on any level. But but even if there's no spiritual component to Steve Bannon's worldview, uh, Karl Rove fully understood it was marriage amendments in 2004 that delivered George W. Bush to victory. When you take a look at these polling, the people of faith, it was record turnout. It was record everything in regards to making that happen. So it's no longer can be a, uh, we're going to shun you off to the side, the kitty corner. We're going to try to win without you. This this happened. Or does it say that the people, they understand that the people of faith can be manipulated? That, and I think what it is, is that the people of faith, just like every other American, they were fed up with a lot of emotion. Remember, I said this, um, you know, several months in a row. A lot of even individuals who I found very surprising who support the family leader, who support what we're about, uh, some of them were aligned with Trump. And the reason they were aligned with Trump, they they disagreed with a lot of his antics, a lot of his statements and mocking and things of that nature. But they agreed with was there's an emotion here. The America that we saw, the pillars are being erased by the elites and there's no one to speak for us anymore. They saw Trump giving the voice and Bannon capitalized on that voice. We'll have a few more thoughts on this when we come back. Stay tuned. Wrap it up here with Bob Vanderplatz in hour two. Aaron, your quick thoughts on this uh, this feature on Steve Bannon and 
his own thoughts, which he shares yeah. candidly in this article. There is nothing that screamed American exceptionalism out of that. There's some stuff um, along the lines of what you were saying, Bob, that what he said, there, there were a few things that he said that were absolutely right. But I think this, that this is perhaps what you get when you ask for your own type of Barack Obama on your side, um, which is something that we've compared it to. And I need to be careful with that, I know, because um, this is you know early on and things look good. But you get people like Steve Bannon, who's just basically saying, hey, I have... I have power. Uh, this is what we're going to do with it. Uh, they got it wrong, and uh, this is what we, uh, you know, this is what we're we're going to do. You're just going to get a mixed bag like that, uh, with uh, you know, just essentially um, throwing what it was um, tantamount to just kind of a, a tantrum for a, a, a while in, um, in during this election. Here are my thoughts, Bob, and you tell me if you disagree. Sure. His. His diagnosis of the problem is 100% correct. And it's much of what I have spent most of my career saying in various forums and say regularly still now. Uh, what he says about the elites, what he says progressivism has wrought. What about the media. Yeah, about the media. Uh, unfettered globalism. I, I, I've been saying these things for since I started my career. I completely agree. My issue is with his solutions. Aaron hit nailed it. There is nothing in, in, in as he lists his solutions, no, there is nothing in there. You know, we, we've been having this conversation this year. Why are we conservatives? What are we trying to conserve? None of the things that made America exceptional that we are fighting to conserve as conservatives are mentioned in any of his solutions at all. Essentially, what he's describing is cost shifting. He's saying we're going we're gonna to take the, the scales of power, the balance of power that the progressives have, have tilted towards their constituencies, and we're going to tilt them towards ours now. That's not a meritocracy. That's not a rising tide lifts all boats. That's not a transcendent movement. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of the Constitution. There's no mention of liberty, freedom, or God-given rights. Um, am I wrong? No, you're exactly right. Matter of fact, I've said as well about what Trump did in the campaign is what a lot of us have been asking a conservative to do for a long time, blow this thing up. And and he tapped in the emotion, and he blew it up. Bannon's right there. I agree with you. Governing and leadership begins to be a little bit more different. It's a little bit more, it's harder. But what you're saying is that if it's a biblical worldview, if it's a constitution, those are foundations in which you can build off of. Those are the things that guide I mean, guide, today's guide the 396th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact, right. the first governing document in American history. Are any of those principles in anything that I just read to you at all? That, that's the issue. And so that whole deal about long-standing, outliving, it's got to be based on a foundation. It can't be based on otherwise it's just another... He's basically talking about a nationalist version of a new deal to buy votes. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. It's FDR. It's, it's bizarro FDR. That's what that is, right? It, it is. Hour 3 is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Come on! 
And we're back with hour number three here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up, we'll get you caught up on some of the headlines that we missed earlier in the program. Also, we'll play a little buy, sell, or hold. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It's that time of the night when our producer Aaron gets to set the agenda and ask the questions around here. It is known as three questions. He can ask us any three things about any three things. There is nothing off limits, but he has to answer the same questions that he asks of us. Thank you, Steve. First question. Will the left ever truly self-destruct to the point where they won't be able to come back to full strength? Or will they always exist in some form in every culture around the world? Well, I I think this viewpoint will always exist to some point because whether we call it Marxism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, it it begins with the premise that human beings can be God, that human beings are basically good, are progressing to things that are even better in their inherent goodness, and therefore are empowered to redefine fundamentals of human existence. This has always existed. It just has different tentacles. It looks different. It, it has different itinerations and reverberations throughout history. But it, it, it really has as its origin, ye be like God. So, it's, so until Christ returns to culminate history, we're always going to be faced with these sorts of ideologies because they're part and parcel to the unregenerate or unrepentant human condition. And we don't want to be repentant. We, we don't want to bow the knee to an authority higher than ourselves, which is why we will seek to suppress the view that we should, which has always existed throughout history as well. So I think that this is just the long arc of history, Todd. It just so happens to be the speck of that arc that we live in today. And so it's known by this particular brand or model. But, you know, a lot of people thought this view, this particular brand of what I'm describing, this humanistic philosophy, a lot of people thought, you know, when the Soviet Union fell and the wall came down in Berlin, a lot of people thought that was the end of it. And all we did was see that we had long ago imported this into our own academia. And now we're having the same arguments on the nightly news in America that we used to have with the Politburo when you and I were kids. Right. So, so humanistic philosophy is always going to exist until history reaches, it reaches its culmination. Agreed, uh, and it's crucial, as you discussed many times last week, we need to march back through the institutions and take them back because you could still have roughly the same number of progressives, but as long as they don't control the institutions, what you'll have is a lot of uh, petulant noise. You won't have people who and they these are not let's face these are not people capable of bullying you one-on-one even what you know they'll scream at you you yell at, no one's afraid of these people but 
once they get the levers of power, that's when they can really make a mess out of your life. I would agree. And the reason why I asked this uh, question is is because of what we talked about in hour one on the show. The left in this country just can't help itself. And are they ever going to be able to stop? And I think the, the question or the answer to that question is no. And it's clear that people hate their behavior. So I agree. This is always going to stick around, but it is possible for them to uh, hurt themselves to the point where they will, as we've seen the last eight years, uh, lose many, many political battles. Um, one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why people went to a bully in Donald Trump to use the bully pulpit on their behalf, and one of the reasons why we're going to see more of these kinds of clashes, is because people who had more maturity didn't do what they were supposed to do with their authority to put this humanism down. We elected too many legislators, too many congressmen who handed them blank checks from the from the public trough, from the public treasury. We funded and subsidized their uh, you know reeducation camps and brainwashing of our kids. This is how the game is played. Yep, Steve. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, and that's what they said to people like you and me yes. when, when we said, "I don't want you to yell and scream at these people. I don't even support that. I just just do your job." That's what they told us. They were not, the adults were not willing to rein in the children. And you know, you go back to the very beginning of this election, before anybody thought Trump was serious about running, and before you guys even came to work here, and in the, in the months and, and two years leading up to when the primary really began, I drew this analogy that I thought a lot of America was like the town in a Clint Eastwood spaghetti western. And they would prefer that the sheriff look and sound like Gary Cooper. That the sheriff that they all rally behind to save the one horse town, to, to throw the banditos out, they would prefer he would look and sound like Gary Cooper. But it's very obvious that the sheriffs that look and sound like Gary Cooper will not do the job. So they're going to go get the guy with the, uh, there's five o'clock shadow and then there's nine o'clock shadow and, and the, uh, the, 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 the pre the self-rolled uh, cheap cigar out of the side of his mouth. And he looks like he showered maybe last month. In other words, they're going to go get Clint Eastwood's uh, character, the anti-hero, because the Gary Cooper nice guy who they would prefer to be the, t- the symbol of the town, to be the symbol of the law and order. He doesn't have it in him to do the job. So they will go get the guy from the speaker. Fire up the music mm-hmm. from Sergio Leone. All right. And they know that that Clint Eastwood, that, that antihero is going to, the collateral damage will be great. And they know the body count will be higher than they can stomach. But they also know that when they emerge from their spider holes, everybody's dead. They're all dead. And they can at least start over again in rebuilding the town. Get the analogy? Yes. That's what, now, I sort of viewed Ted Cruz as that person. But that, that's essentially what this election turned out to be. People said, I, that's why they didn't care about, that's why, you, that's why I'm not sure if the Billy Bush video and all that oppo research, had it really come out in the primary, I don't know that it would have made a difference. It didn't make a difference in the general, Because it didn't make a difference in the general with a far more skeptical electorate that's wider, you're right. Because I think by that point in time, the, the, it was clear that's what the electorate wanted, and Trump had met that brand. He was going to be the Clint Eastwood guy that was going to come in, and yes, you're not comfortable with it, you know he's going to say things you're not happy with, but when when you, when you come out from under the bunker, everyone's dead. And at least that means you can start over. And you got a chance. And I think that's where a lot of people are at right now. 
Well said. Uh, is there a sermon that stands out to you as the best sermon you've ever heard, or homily, as the case may be? I mean, this is an easy one for me. I, I, I can name several, but the one that will stick with me the rest of my life was uh, Promise Keepers 2003, mm-hmm. Kemper Arena in Kansas City. And the first message that was given there before the altar call was by a guy named Joe White. And I can I, I, I have almost the entire thing encapsulized in my mind. Um, and uh, it's it's what uh, what God used to essentially break me. So for me, that's that is probably going to always rank number one. I don't think I have a specific one, but they happen rarely these days, at least in my experience. The ones that truly you look around and they're making people shift in their seats. You know, the, the you don't discuss religion and mm-hmm. politics at the table one. I'm Catholic. We know that by now. Uh, and unfortunately, we spend a lot of time pulling punches. But uh, when they come out and bring out uh, the big guns and just say, as for this, no. I'm with you. Um, when I lived in the Twin Cities, I uh, I went to uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church uh, for a season. And, uh, of course, um, the pastor back then was John Piper and got to hear a lot of really good sermons from him. But the guy who succeeded him, Jason Meyer, gave uh, his, his very first Sanctity of Life Sunday sermon was um, about the gospel of life in a culture of death. And I remember him talking about um, our culture and the way that it's going to the point where our culture has bought this lie and has become so desensitized to uh, what it has done to children um, that it will eventually kill or abort um, or just get rid of any slight uh, deformity or any slight offness with any children to the point where Christians in our culture will be the only people who actually care for and will love um, you know, children with disabilities or special needs kids. And that, for some reason, that really stood out to me. Um, not enough time for question number three. I'm sorry. Well, we promised people three. We will get to it. So we'll get to it when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. Some people work for what they get, and some people ask for Uncle Sam to give it to them. Hello, but I deserve it. Decide who you want to be and listen to the Steve Day Show. All right, we promised people three questions. We ran out of time, Aaron. So quickly, question number three is... Uh, normally, of course, we're not a fan of, uh, of banning things, but if you had to pick a fashion trend that needs to go away, what would it be? I've never liked bell bottoms, ever. And I hate, I hated them when we were kids. And I, the return of the skinny tie, no. The skinny tie, yeah. I don't like the skinny tie. I don't like the skinny tie from the 80s, and I don't like bell bottoms from the 60s and the 70s. Todd? I was going to say skinny jeans. All things millennial, basically. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> All uh, things. So just to just to, narr- just to, to save yourself some time, anything millennial, Todd, you're out. <laughs> it's like uh, from Lego, the uh, Morgan Freeman's character, the uh, wizard guy. Everything you just said is just the worst. Well, everything you're wearing is just the worst. Uh, I will. I will help you out, Todd. Specifically, the man bun. 
That is just oh. that is the worst thing, and it is a millennial. It's it's a millennial trend, and you know what I'm talking about, right? The I do. Long hair. We're gonna put it in a bun. Oh, that's just no. Thank you. No, thank you. Let's get to the nightly buzz. And now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We got to get some buzz going. It is the nightly buzz. We go back, take a look at some of the headlines we may have missed from earlier in the show. That are the buzz, according uh, to what our producer Aaron has seen trending on social media and at uh, your water cooler at work. He's got those headlines. We've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. A literal reading of Scripture and faith in an interventionist God strengthen church attendance. According to a new academic study of what drives mainline Protestant churches to either die out or succeed, preaching on those two theological precepts makes all the difference. The forthcoming article entitled Theology Matters confirms a truth universally acknowledged, or at least uh, reasonably intuited in any way. The Christ-optional gospel as metaphor liberal progressive mainline Protestantism born of our secular age keeps... So loose a lock on wandering souls that they wander away. The authors of this study, Drs. David Haskell, Kevin Flatt, and Stephanie Burgoyne, used five years of data gathered from 2,255 attendees of Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and United Church of Canada parishes. Again, those two theological precepts, a literal reading of Scripture and faith in an interventionist God. This may seem counterintuitive to skeptics who think... Well, that that message is too narrow. It's too exclusion exclusionary. Uh, you know, the broader message is what applies. Except the church is not a it's not an institution from the natural realm. It is a supernatural one. So it operates on a completely different economy than uh, than than you know your your corporation does or your small business does. It's got a totally different board of directors. And a little bit different CEO. All right. So with that in mind, um, there is one parallel between the church and a business in that a business has to know what its brand is and it has to know who its intended customers are in order to build that brand and to build loyalty with those customers to get them to come. Right. Well, that does apply to the church as well. It's just its brand is not the world's brand. So when the church decides it's going to peddle, Todd, with the, with the world is peddling, why would I get up on a Sunday morning and go? Why? If, if Why should I go on a Wednesday night when I can just watch Oprah when I get home from work, get the exact same thing? And, and she gives away money. She doesn't ask money from me. And her show's quote, free. The only reason I would go, pardon the pun, in mass is because I'm getting something I can't get from other institutions in the culture. If you're going to give me exactly what all the other institutions are going to offer, what is my incentive to come? Answer, none, unless I've got a personal relationship there or I just really would prefer to get dressed up on a Sunday because i got nothing else going on. The only reason I would come is because you're offering me something I can't get elsewhere in the world. This echoes what I uh, said last segment about uh, sermons. It has to make you shift in your seat. It, it, it cannot just dump more 
of the baggage that's been dumped on you for the last six days through the, for, by the secular progressive culture. It has to take those off, and it has to build you back up. And if it doesn't do that, it's not worth your time. And by the way, this is fantastic that we have these studies, but the essence of it is, duh, no kidding. Actually talking about the real one true God and not just making this as an extension of social justice, you're kidding. Well, what's the brand? The brand is uh, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are a guidepost on a narrow road. Uh, to, heading where? Towards a, the who we believe is the only one true God. Therefore, our brand in and of itself is exclusionary. Thus, we we support and reinforce that brand when our message is as well. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, next story. Designer Sophie Thiele, who has dressed Michelle Obama in the past, has announced she will be boycotting Trump and his wife, Melania, by refusing to lend her any of her designs. In an open letter posted to her Twitter account, she writes, quote, as an independent fashion brand, we consider our voice an expression of our artistic and philosophical ideas. The Sophie Thiele brand stands against all discrimination and prejudice. Our runway shoes, ad campaigns, and celebrity dressing have always been a cele- celebration of diversity and a reflection of the world <laughs> we live in, end quote. This is excellent. I I say more power to you. The only thing I demand is that in return, I don't have to bake you a cake or sell you flowers. Exactly. So all of a sudden now, I can't be compelled to to perform a service that violates my conscience. Interesting. Yeah, but... but Who's been making that argument all along? But who who was it from ESPN, that story that you read the other day, Steve, the the, the liberal who was taking... Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill. Oh, are you afraid of being wrong? Are you, are you afraid this is about right and wrong, and we're always... Trust me, when we're, we're arguing with right. you fools, we're not afraid of being yes. wrong. No, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to back you up on this. Uh, by all means, you should not be forced to perform a service. A service that is, in a, that is anathema to your moral conscience as a private business owner. You should not be compelled to do that. That is one of the most tried and truisms of Americana. However... You're not allowed to say liberty for me and not for thee either. So if this applies to these designers, then it applies to Baron L. Stutzman. It applies to uh, Aaron and Melissa Klein and so on and so forth. So this is what Trump has done. to. I mean, we, how long have we spent the last two years being forced at the point of a government gun? You must do this with your bathrooms. You must do this with right. their business. And instantly after Trump. They are they can't help themselves. They are exposing the fact that the emperor has no clothes. Be not afraid of these people. Not to mention this is the same Trump who was okay with with allowing the so-called transgender madness into into the bathroom. This is the same Trump who's the first president ever to get elected on a platform of support of gay marriage and they still can't help themselves. You're listening to Steve Dace. Knowledge is power. I've seen what it can do, and I want to learn more. Gain more knowledge right here. It's the Steve Day Show.
All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Remember, I said at the top of the show, it's a short week, so we got a lot we have to cram in these next three days. That includes our new weekly staple, buy, sell, or hold. Our producer, Aaron, will throw out a series of provocative statements, and Todd and I will decide whether we're buying, whether we're selling, if we're going to hold on that one for a while. And we will explain, of course, why. Thank you, Steve. The Iran deal will be ripped up or at least heavily modified. Sell. I, I want I want to say hold because I, 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 I think there's a lot of elements in the Senate that would like to do so. Um, but this is something that... Um, I mean, Donald Trump has been consistent about throughout the campaign. Uh, he was not for dismantling it on day one as a candidate. The fact he's considering Bob Corker, who essentially is its guardian protector in the Republican Party, as uh, at least allegedly. Remember, I'm the guy telling you, cautioning you on names for all these appointments and stuff and everything else until the details are finalized. But his name's been thrown out there a lot. Um. And he was its Republican guardian protector in the U.S. Senate. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say sell. But again, it's, it's because I'm using analysis relying on the consistency of Donald Trump, Todd. And that's, that's always an iffy proposition. I'm saying sell because I think these things in Donald Trump's mind are just naturally fungible anyways. I mean, the minute he decides he doesn't care about this. He won't care about it, and he'll he'll re, he he'll do a de facto rewrite of it. In two months, we will look at Donald Trump's cabinet and call it the most conservative presidential candidate of the modern or cabinet of the modern era. What's the modern era? Modern era, um, I should say, of the twenty first century. Let's change it to that, which is not that. Uh, so you're including the George W. Bush. George W. Bush. Yeah. I'm going to say bye. I'm going to say bye. At the trajectory that it's on going. On the trajectory yes. we're on, um, I'm going to say bye. But again, I, I, I'm not confident, only because this Very is... Very low bar, by the way. Well, yes. And, you know, you look at, you know, George W. Bush's attorney general was one of us, John Ashcroft, the culture warrior. Jeff Sessions is one of us. So there's kind of a wash. But um, some of the other things that are being discussed so far... I think it will end that I think well Aaron's question really is it'll be more the cabinet's makeup will look more conservative than George W Bush's initially did. Uh I think that's very possible. I'm going to say bye. And uh, I on the on the trajectory we're on, but I also think that with Donald Trump all trajectories are possible, Todd. I think buying is sound on not only the trajectory that we're on now, but the trajectory that was expected by the people demands it. Now, again, it's like the article with Nicholas Kristof saying that newspapers should end up having more conservative voices. You know, what are you going to do after that to demand that it happens? Are the are these the kind of conservatives with backbone who are going to do more than just say they've arrived? Are they going to act? One of Donald Trump's children will hold an official position within his administration at some point during his tenure as president. Oh, I think that's a that's the easiest statement yet. Yeah, that's a buy for sure. What that will be, 
Well, especially if you consider the in-law, you consider the son-in-law Kushner, for example. Uh, I think that's a definite buy, Todd, don't you? I think that's a lock. I was going to say sell, but only because they, the family just, they're there automatically. They don't have to have an official position. True, true, but um, if said one of them wanted to have a future beyond this, it, that's, some, that's a yes. line on a resume, right? More buy, seller hold next. You're listening to Steve Dace. So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your beliefs. And there are progressive radical liberal phone companies spending tens of millions of dollars to remove conservative leaders from office and fight for liberal social change. So what's a patriot like you to do? Well, you can start by calling my friends at Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. You get the same quality service, competitive prices, and you get to help causes you believe in. Call Patriot Mobile right now at 800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code STEVE at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-A-PATRIOT or go to PatriotMobile.com. Mention promo code STEVE. If it's true and you still don't like it, that's a you problem. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, more buy, seller, hold here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Aaron, take it away. Thank you, Steve. Soccer will reach a popularity on par with football in the United States in the next 30 years. Uh, that's an easy sell. Really? Uh, we've been hearing this. How old are you? Uh, 24? 23. 23. Mm. All my life. I'm 43 now. All my life I have heard this. And the answer is no. And there's two reasons why. One, there's no financial incentive to continue playing it at a very at a high enough level to make that happen. Because it's not a sport that you're going to make millions of dollars in. And given uh, the culture we live in today where so many parents, every parent thinks their kid's a future pro athlete and the amount of money that is spent on AAU and summer camps and everything else, you know, people want an ROI where that's concerned. And there's just not enough scholarships out there for collegiate teams at a high level. There's not enough money to be made for professional dollars. So when you have that sort of cap in earnings at the top, that, pardon the expression, trickles down to the bottom. That's number one. Number two, they don't score enough points, which might be the reason for number one. But I think that's, to me, that's an easy sell. And that has nothing to do with my th- personal feelings on the game whatsoever. I have those personal feelings. I covered the game for several years as a sports reporter. My personal feelings on the game are driven by the analysis I just gave. It caps out. You see this in high school. You see a lot of young, young kids play great play soccer when they're little and they're younger. And then what happens when they become 14, 15, or 16? They gravitate to where? Football or basketball. Why? 
because it's more exciting. More well, well, and you know what makes it more exciting? There's more points, more There's scoring. More scoring, more, more scholarships, more yeah. money to be made. That's true. Okay, so I think until that changes at the top, then there really isn't an incentive for, for people to continue investing in this, you know, well into the, the late teen years. Well, the last part I take issue, and I'm deeply immersed in this, all because of the... the uh, the club aspect of things. You soccer has made sure, and other sports. Now you can get so immersed at the elementary and middle school level already in a very highly branded, highly competitive aspect that that's hard to put away just because you're in high school and and kids are self-selecting to be single sport athletes of all kinds including soccer land but you are right about the points and also unless listen uh the women's soccer team is so so much better than the men's soccer team i i pretty much watch way more women's soccer than men's soccer but unless and until the men's soccer team get, runs deep into the world cup that's a problem too you just don't have a team that's even close to competitive on an international stage Michigan at Ohio State 2016 will be seen as the biggest regular season Big Ten game in the last two decades. You mean in terms of ratings? In terms of ratings and importance of the actual game. Because we haven't had we haven't had a game like this where it's this huge rivalry. The last time two was top four ranked teams, and yes, we had one versus two, right? That was ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, that was ten years ago. That was uh, the year that that was when the week that Bo died was that game. Um. And that, and that game changed a lot of history in the Big Ten. And, if, we've, if, and both if, teams have been through a uh, coaching yeah. change. And If Michigan had won that game, I've always believed Lloyd Carr would have, would have announced his retirement going into the BCS National mm-hmm. Championship and likely would have had one of his assistants, Mike DeBoard, who's now the offensive coordinator at Tennessee, would have handed him the head coaching duties and things in Michigan would have turned out differently. Maybe not. I'm not saying better, but they would have been different. There would have been no Rich Rodriguez, et cetera. Um, and, and you never know the difference one game makes. I mean, a week later, in, or a year later in 2007, Pittsburgh upset number 2 West Virginia as a 25-point underdog. And if West Virginia had won that game by one point, they were going to the national championship. And that would have meant LSU would have stayed home. And I remember watching that game as a Michigan fan, not kn- knowing we were going to hi- need to hire a new coach, not knowing that this game was going to change who we were going to hire because everybody thought we were going to hire less miles. All of a sudden, West Virginia loses now, and that opens the door for for LSU to get back in there. And so now Les Miles is like, guys, I, I can't go right now. I'm, I'm, I'm playing for a national championship. Talk to me in January, where Michigan doesn't want to wait that long. And so who's available now? The, the other hot name, which, which, which was who? Rich Rodriguez. He had turned down Alabama the year before, and he could have been at Alabama. They would have never gotten Nick Saban, right? So you never know these outlier games, how the dominoes that fall and how they change things around. Um, I don't think this game will have that kind of impact because these two coaches are Hall of Famers that are entrenched for a while. Uh, I, I think it will be the, the most watched college game of this season. I think it'll be the, the most watched Michigan-Ohio State game in at least 10 years, or Big Ten game, since at least that game 10 years ago. But because of the stability right now within the two programs, Todd, I don't think it has you know multi-year ramifications like some of the examples I just gave did. I can't argue with a bit of that because I can't think of a game that would rival the game that we're talking about. I would buy. 
another at least three. Oh, I don't think I said sell. I forgot to say sell. Okay. Okay. So you're I explained that. why okay. I sold that, but didn't actually. Actually, say sell. I was that's that was a very good explanation. Um, let's see the pop. At least three pop culture uh, celebrities and icons will follow in Donald Trump's footsteps in 2020 and run for president. Sell, but I but I do think the Democrats will not will nominate somebody that is that has never held elected office, I think will be their 2020 nominee. And I think it'll be somebody like a Jeff Bezos or somebody like that who has some pop culture appeal, obviously. You know, he's your your hipster, progressive business, uh, you know, billionaire mogul. Uh, but I don't think you'll see like three of them now. I mean, we're, we're, wait, you're talking any office at all? Uh, I should say president. Okay, president. Yeah, I I, that, that'll be too many. I'll say sell. But I think there will for certain be one. Sell, but I was going to go. Uh, you're going to see a lot more of this at the level of Congress, though, and, you know, state houses, things like that. It's going to happen. Broadcast television corporations will eventually go the way of the newspaper inter- industry. Buy. I, I think that... Um, and that's that's a crazy thing to think about. At least, I mean, even ten years ago, that was crazy. But the way the internet is going, and even with all of these digital companies like Twitter yes. and Facebook trying to buy up sports, yep. which is the last vestige of uh, you know solid um, you know solid profitable. That's broadcast. the last remaining anchor yeah. programming there yes. is live sporting yes. events. And so, if that's no longer on the table, then what's the what is the anchor? There isn't one. It's anchors away. So, yeah, that might be crazy to say right now, but 10 years ago it was crazy to say that 10 years from now about the newspaper industry talk. That's why I buy, buy, buy again. That's all I got. We'll come back, wrap things up here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's about convictions, not positions. Steve Dace. And we're back to wrap it up here on a Monday on a short Thanksgiving week here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. So what did we learn here tonight? Todd, you're first. What'd you learn this evening? I learned that the excitement that I have inside me for the press burning down, for the conniption fits they're having, and knowing intimately what it's like to be inside those newsrooms. I don't have I don't have to imagine what it's like. I know how they're feeling. I see it on my Facebook walls. I see the excuses they're making. They're not going to learn. But as much pleasure as I take in that, we need a free and functioning press. It is a huge problem that we don't have one. And so we can, when we talked about the bender that we're on right now, remember, we cannot be perpetually uh, drunk as a people. We have to sober up. We have to realize that once Trump gets in, it's not going to be good enough just to constantly being uh, rock'em sock'em robots with one another. We have got, and Steve has accurately said, you know, yes, a presidency is four years. This first year, has got to be a huge one. It has to be a game changer. It cannot be nipping around the edges. You need to get rid of Obamacare. You need to get rid of uh, entire departments that we've been talking about forever, but we just answer like on quiz show, and sometimes guys like Rick Perry don't even get that right. 
sec- the, the Department of Education are gone, showing that we can function as a people without big daddy government getting in the way. So I've learned that right now that we are very, very, very happy just being happy. That's not good enough in the long run. I want to say this without coming off um, as, I, I don't know, um, some some sort of uh, person who sticks his foot in his mouth somehow. I, I, what I have learned from watching the left over the last few weeks is that they don't, as much as we want to, we should not scorn them as much as much fun as it is, um, as much as we would like to hate them, as much as we would like to say all manner of things about them. What they really need is our pity because progressivism is a cancer. They they don't they don't know it. It inhibits free thinking. It it, it inhibits uh, your mind to actually. Uh, consider uh, other possibilities. They don't know these these conniption fits that they've been throwing. They don't know anything else than to do this. And so I think what I've learned and what I've tried to at least uh, set my mind on is to, is to pity these people. Yes, we should never be afraid to shrink back and tell the truth. But above all, I think they they need pity. Well said, both of you. We'll be back at it again tomorrow. Until then, John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.